But I want to go back to the beginning of 2 Peter. I want to point you to verse 3 and 4. And Peter opens this letter to the church, and he gives this great encouragement that God's divine power has granted to us as believers all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter says that when you are saved, you're born again, that that comes through knowledge of Christ. Not just knowing facts about Jesus, but the type of knowing of Christ, the type of knowledge of Him that says He is Lord and that we are sinners and that we need a Savior and that Christ is that Savior and that He has come and that He has died on the cross for our sins as a paying the penalty that was due our sins. And He suffered death because the wages of sin is death. But then he was resurrected three days later, showing that he has power over death. And he offers anyone who would believe upon him that he will save and he will rescue. He offers them eternal life, that they can escape the corruption that is in the world because of sin. And Peter says, you can know as a Christian that you have everything you need to live a godly life. You lack nothing. You lack Nothing. You, it doesn't matter if you were to say, well, I just, you know, I don't have, I don't read very well. I don't listen very well. I, I, I struggle to pray. And the Bible answers, God has given you everything you need. That doesn't mean you don't have to try. Doesn't mean you don't have to exert effort, but it, it means that when you're exerting that effort, you have, by His divine power, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so Peter says, because of this, he goes on in verse 5 and he begins to say, make every effort to supplement your faith with all of these different virtues. And when you get to verse 8, he says, if these qualities are yours, if all of these virtues are yours and they're increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he says, grow spiritually grow. We talk about this verse a lot, but that New Testament passage I always say is so important. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Grow. And do that knowing it is God who works in you, both to will and to act for His good pleasure. Exert the effort. Grow. And if you will do that, if you will increase in growth and godliness... God will ensure that you are effective and fruitful. You will have knowledge of Christ. And then in verse 10, Peter said, Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Which I think means never fall away. You will never fail. If you are doing these things because of the power of God that is in you, you will not fail. 
and you will not fall. Now, I want you to compare that beautiful encouragement from chapter 1 with the warning that he gives us beginning in chapter 2. Verse 1, but church know this, false teachers will be among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter says, there are going to be those among you who have the appearance of being a Christian, but they are actually false. They are false teachers. And they're not only going astray themselves, but they're going to lead other people astray. And they're going to entice them by their practice of sensuality. And because of them, many people are going to point at the gospel and say, see, that's not true. If Jesus was true, if the gospel was true, then those people wouldn't fall away. They wouldn't have sinned that way. The enemy is always working to make us fall, that the way of truth might be blasphemed. And so that is the backdrop in which we come to this last part of chapter 2 in which Peter is giving us these warnings over and over about these false teachers If you're a note-taker and have a guide this morning, let's start with this life truth. False teachers appear confident and are very persuasive. They are especially dangerous to those who are new or immature in following Jesus. They appear confident, they're very persuasive, and they're especially dangerous to those who are new or immature in following Jesus. So let's look at verse 17 and 18 that Nick read just a moment ago. These, and the these he's talking about, the false teachers. These false teachers are waterless springs, and they're mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So first of all, what Peter tells us in these two verses is there's two ways that false teachers will influence people. And I want to remind you that false teachers, as I said last week, they don't always have a microphone. They're not always dressed up. They're not always preaching in front of people. Sometimes they will be, but often false teachers are among the church. They're speaking... And their influence may be happening in smaller groups or even one-on-one conversations. They have two ways they influence people. First of all, they speak loud boasts of folly. So they, they talk. They persuade by their words. And they sound very confident. They sound like they know what they're talking about. They sound like it might be true. And the second way that they influence is they speak loud boasts of folly and they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. In other words, they persuade people to do what feels good. Sensual passions means that these false teachers are persuading people 
by tempting their desire for pleasure of various kinds, but definitely tempting them by a perverse sexual ethic, because that's ultimately what sensual passions mean. Very false teaching regarding sexuality. And they are enticing people to follow after them, to follow their way, to listen to their words because they sound so confident, and to do what feels right. And they are dangerous. Peter calls them waterless springs. They're dangerous because what they say sounds refreshing, like a spring, like being in a desert and you're thirsty and you see what you think is a spring and you go after it and you pursue it and ultimately you find out there's actually no water there. There's nothing refreshing there. And that's the imagery Peter's using. It sounds good, what they say. It looks good, what they're doing. You think it will refresh you. You think it will satisfy you. You think it's that missing piece of your life that you need. And Peter says, but actually, it will lead to utter darkness. Because God has reserved utter darkness for these false teachers, and anyone who follows their way, they too will find themselves in utter darkness. And they are especially dangerous to those who do not have a strong foundation in Christ. Notice what Peter says. He says, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Those who live in error are the world. Do you remember the language from verse 4 in chapter 1? He says, you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world. And now he says, these false teachers are especially dangerous to those who are barely escaping the world. What does that mean? He means they've barely come out of it. They, they've, they've walked out of the world into Christ, but barely. They're at the beginning of their journey. They're a new convert. They've just come to know Jesus. And perhaps they're, they're really immature. Maybe they've been trying to follow Christ for a little bit, or they've, they've made a declaration of faith, but they haven't started actually growing. I had a conversation with someone about this Wednesday night, but it is one of the grand falsehoods that our American evangelistic system has produced over the last 50, 60 years or so, when we began telling people that what it means to be saved is you repeat a prayer, you say a phrase, come say this phrase and you'll be saved. Now, perhaps the beginning of your journey with Christ was you prayed a prayer with someone. I'm not saying that that is, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying that is not a proper beginning. Praying and asking Christ to save you, the Bible says we should do that. But when we tell people, come, come to the front of a building, come to the, come to an altar. Now repeat this prayer. Okay. Now you're saved. 
You never have to worry about hell again. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, okay, you've started this journey. Keep going. Grow. There are so many people that live among you every day right here in Alabama who think that they are bound for heaven because 17 or 18 years ago at a youth rally, they repeated a prayer. And they have not thought about Christ since then. And their confidence is based on praying this phrase. And it's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is cry out to Christ, pray a prayer, and then grow in following Him. Preserve in following Him. So here come these false teachers. They target these people who don't really know what they believe yet. Maybe they target them on purpose. Maybe they target them because they'll listen. And they present to them a dangerous gospel. And those Christians, those new converts, are in danger of following their path. You think about how Peter says they're waterless springs. Compare that to that Psalm 104 that Tamara read to open us up this morning, where the psalmist says, about God, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They give drink to every beast of the field. You water the mountains and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Look, here, here's, here's the, the reality. Every single one of us need refreshment. Every single one of us need refreshing. We look for it every week. Every day. We look for a way to be refreshed. We seek after that which will help us rest and feel good from this long and hard journey we have living in this world. And you probably know what you do to be refreshed. And I am not saying that you can't be refreshed by gifts of God, but I am telling you if you try to be refreshed apart from God, even just in His gifts, it will never truly satisfy you, whatever it is. Only God can do that. And the problem with these false teachers is they're telling these new converts, oh yeah, you can, just listen to this, you know. Follow this. Do what feels good. It's okay. There's no judgment coming. God will forgive that. The more you sin, the more there's grace. And people who want refreshment follow after it. Jesus said in John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Because the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The question before us is, is Christ our source of refreshment? Is Christ our rest? Is running to him in prayer? Is reading his word? Is obeying what he says? Is that our point of rest? You're frustrated at somebody because they are angry at you and they have hurt you and they have harmed you and the rest and the refreshment you want is to tell them off. And God says, love your enemies. Where will you find your refreshment? In doing the thing that feels the best and seems right or doing the thing that Christ told you to do? That's the question that's before us. These false teachers in your notes, they set 
a deadly example. By their example, we see the deadly consequences of leaving the faith. And we see our great need to abide in Jesus. I think Peter is holding up these false teachers as examples. Let's read verse 20 through 22 together. For if they, excuse me, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. There's several questions that these three verses bring up to us. Right off, who's the they? For whatever overcomes a person... Excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world... Who's he talking about? Is he talking about the new converts? That if, if they... If they go back into their old way of life, it would have been better for them to have never come to know Christ at all. Is he talking about the false teachers? I believe he's talking about the false teachers. Because in verse 19, that's who he's talking about. They promise freedom. They are slaves of corruption. They have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The other question, or another question that you can ask regardless of if he's talking about the false teachers or he's talking about new converts, is he saying that you can lose your salvation? Is this language pointing to someone coming to to saving grace, and then falling away out of salvation. When we come to the Bible, one of the things that I, I tell you all the time is it's important to know context. So I tell you, if you're going to read Second Peter, you should know the context of Second Peter. When was it written? Who wrote it? Where were they when they wrote it? What's going on in the culture when they wrote it? And that is important. But there's another context you have to look at the Bible because while Second Peter is a letter in a book of the Bible, you can also think of it as a chapter of the Bible, because the Bible is one book and one work written ultimately by one author. So you need to learn the Bible in the context of all of the Bible. There's a theological context that you must understand so that you know how to process passages. The theological context question is, can you lose your salvation? Kind of seems that's what Peter's saying. And so you have to ask yourself, does that line up with the rest of what the Bible teaches? Because if it does, then you can lose your salvation. If it doesn't, then that means there's something else that Peter's talking about that may appear to be someone losing their salvation, but they're really not. Now, I've told you before, I said it last week, I've said it many times, I personally believe the Bible teaches that when you are truly regenerated and born again, that you are preserved because God is preserving you. I would point you to a passage like John 10, verse 27 and 28, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, 
and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who have given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I think Christ is showing us this picture of security. Now, there are people who say, well, no one can snatch you, but you could leave. I think not even you can snatch yourself out of God's hand. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those who He called, He justified. And those who He justified, He glorified. I think Paul paints a very secure picture in Romans 8 of what it looks like to be a believer. Predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So I don't think that Peter is saying in this passage that you can lose your salvation. What is he saying there then? What about these false teachers? Because he uses the language of salvation. Did you see that? If after they have escaped the defilements of the world. We have to say, if you go back to verse 4 in chapter 1, that's how he described salvation, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. This is salvation language. I can't show it all to you today because that's really not the heart of the sermon. But I believe the New Testament shows us that there is an attachment you can have to Jesus that is not a saving attachment. That you can know something about Jesus and have some attachment to Him, but you are not truly born again. I would remind you of the parable that I talk about all the time. The four soils, the four hearts. One of them is rocky ground. And Jesus said that is a person who receives the gospel with joy. They hear the gospel, they receive it, and it moves them. They have a response to it. Joy wells up in them. And Jesus says they endure for a while. Until a time comes in which they are going to be so persecuted because of their belief that they fall away. And Jesus says this happens because there was actually no root in them. I think what Jesus is saying is that you can have a saving, you can have an attachment to Him that brings joy. You're looking to Christ for something. You're, 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 you're beginning to ponder and look into Christianity. Maybe He can heal you. Maybe He can provide that which you haven't had before. Maybe He'll take care of finances for you. Maybe He's the answer to all the problems and you began to follow. You have an attachment to Him. But there's going to come a point where you're going to realize that being a Christ follower is costly. It's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. And when that happens, these people reach a point where they say, not worth it. Not what I signed up for, not what I intended. And Jesus said there was no root in them. Nothing had really changed in their heart. I think that's what's happening. These false teachers had some attachment to Jesus. 
but they didn't want to actually follow Jesus. They didn't want it to actually cost them something. So they began to mold the gospel to better fit what they wanted. I can have my sin in Christ too. I can do what I want and follow Jesus. And they began to lead others astray. And Peter says what will happen to them is they get entangled back into that way of life because there was really no root in them. And they're overcome by it. Now, what if I'm wrong? And it's possible some of you in this room think I am. Because you've done your own study of scriptures and you think that my interpretation of that is incorrect. Here's my answer. We can still have unity in Jesus because the final, the final application of that is the same. It is deadly to leave the faith. If you think you can leave the faith, it's deadly to do so. If you think you can't, the warning that it's deadly to leave the faith is the warning God is using to keep you in the faith. Because it would be deadly to leave Christ. So deadly that Peter says it would have been better that you never knew anything about him. You would have been better to have never approached him at all than to approach him and then go back. Why is that? I think the Bible shows you're likely to not return. And I think the Bible also shows that the more knowledge you have about Jesus, the more you will be held responsible on the day of judgment. The application, church, is the same. Cling to Christ and abide in Him. Abide in Jesus. If you think and believe in the that saints will persevere, as I said last week, it's not a pill you take that makes you immune to hell. It is you stay the course and you persevere until the end. And you are warned by God, don't stray. Because it's deadly to stray. And he's using these warnings to keep you on the path. If you think you can lose your salvation, it's the same. Cling to Christ. The reason I think that is important, by the way, is because so many people fear that they've wandered back into the world and they can't come back. And I want you to notice that these false teachers became entangled again and were overcome. If you want to come to Christ, you have not been overcome by the world. If you desire to be saved, even if you have been wandering and have gotten entangled back into your old way of life, if you desire freedom in Jesus, you have not been overcome to the point that you cannot receive Him. The Bible says on the day you stand before Him, anyone who the Father has given to the Son... Anyone who is called on the name of Christ will be saved and Jesus will not reject him. You will never stand before Jesus and clinging to him as your only hope for the salvation of sins and him say, I'm sorry, you're not on the list. The fact that you're clinging to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins shows that you're in Christ. So if you've wandered, come back and be warned, don't wander. Because it's deadly to do so. 
Paul says, excuse me, Peter says, if you go back to your old way of life, if you go back to sin, he calls that sin vomit. He calls it mire. We don't think of sin that way. We don't think, man, when we realize I've been playing with sin this week, we don't think, man, I've been in vomit this week. That's the language Peter uses. That's the language God had Peter use. We abide in Christ through prayer. We abide in Christ by reading and obeying His Word. Jesus said that, that abiding was observing His Word and being obedient to it. Why were some of these new converts being tempted to leave the faith? Look at verse 19. These false teachers promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. What did they want freedom from? They wanted freedom from whatever had them bound. They wanted freedom from those grave clothes that they had been called to new life, but that old way of life was still clinging to them. Rejection, hurt, sin, things from their past. Every single one of us in this room wrestle with being bound by something. And we want to be free from it. And the question is, where do we find the freedom? These false teachers were telling these new converts, you find freedom in pleasure. You'll feel better. Do what you want. God will forgive. There is no judgment. It's okay. Make yourself feel better. Do what will give you refreshment. God really isn't condemning that. God really isn't saying that's wrong. They promise freedom by self-rule. You be your boss. You do what you want. You do what makes you feel good, and that's where you will find freedom. In your notes, biblical freedom is not found by serving ourselves, but by serving God and living to advance His kingdom. Freedom is not found by serving ourselves, but by serving God and living to advance His kingdom. Listen, there's so many wonderful things about living in the United States of America. Many that we should be thankful for, including freedom that we have to come and worship. Here's reality. In America, freedom is a God. Individualistic freedom to do what we want, when we want, It's a God. It's an idol. And Peter's response to this promise from these false teachers that freedom is where you find satisfaction, self-rule. Peter says, they themselves are slaves. They're telling you, come be free like me. And Peter says, they're slaves. They're slaves to corruption. These false teachers had fallen back into those entanglements of sin and they had been overcome by it. Here's the reality. We will be ruled by something. True individualistic freedom is not a reality. We may think that, 
because we've been somewhat trained by where we have been gifted to grow up that the best way to live the American dream is to be totally free where no one tells you how to do anything. Be self-sufficient in your finances so you don't have a boss. Be single so you don't have a boss. I'm just laughing at the muted laughter. Um, Do whatever feels good. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Look, we know this. Sometimes we don't even want to do something until someone tells us we can't. Then we want to do it. The Bible says there really is no true freedom Because if you try to rule yourself, you will actually be enslaved by sin. So be ruled by God. Because God made you. And God knows what works best. God knows how you were created to exist. You were created to love Him and know Him and honor Him and serve Him and live in His kingdom. And that's what works. That's where true satisfaction is. That's what life Abundant life is really about. That's where abundant life is found. And I know that's counter to how we think. I know that's counter to what our culture says. But it is the truth that true freedom is not in serving yourself because you're not actually serving yourself. You're serving your sinful passions. True freedom is found in serving God. I did text Eric this week. I texted him on Thursday. On Wednesday, I was hiking. And I felt like the Lord impressed upon me to text Eric Acock and ask him if he's been studying any scripture this week we should pray about as a church. And I didn't do that on Wednesday. I forgot. But the Lord reminded me on Thursday, so I texted him on Thursday. And I just said, have you been studying anything this week? You got any passages on your heart? He sent back these. Lazarus come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. So I asked Eric, I said, okay, what would your summary be of that if we were to pray it? And after a while, he came back and he said, I think we should pray for people who are dead in unbelief, and I think we should pray that that we will have the wisdom and power to help people be unbound by whatever is still clinging to them from their old way of life. And I said, okay, that's what we're going to pray about Sunday. Then I went to study the text for today. Which is about what? False teachers promising false freedom. And people still being bound because they are not looking at what is true to unbind them. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of worship and prayer and we'll have prayer partners at the front. And when we do, I'm going to ask you that if you have something that is clinging to you, that you need to be unbound from, that you would be bold to come and ask for prayer. Because I believe God has worked in our midst this week to show us that he wants us to pray for that. But before we do, I want to end with another final exhortation in your notes. If we're going to pray this prayer focus, 
If we're going to pray that the Spirit of God would lead us in wisdom and power to help unbind those who may be dealing with their own form of burial cloth, so we are we need to be unbound ourselves, but we also want to be people who can go and help others be unbound. If we're going to do that, I want us to know that we help unbind people only when we teach them to observe the pure gospel which transcends every human ideology. Only the pure gospel about Christ can unbind someone. And and what am I thinking about here? I don't think these false teachers were teaching a completely foreign gospel. I think they were teaching an impure gospel. They lived just like we do, where there were all types of streams of thinking and ideologies and philosophies in the world. And people tend to think, well, the gospel, people who aren't saved tend to think the gospel is one ideology, it's one way, it's one philosophy to live your life. The Bible says it's the only true philosophy, the only true way to live. You're a sinner, you need a savior, Christ is the savior, believe upon Christ, your sins will be forgiven. There's many different streams of thought and philosophies in the world that would teach you how to get to God or that there is no God, and it was true in Peter's day as well. There is really good evidence that in the first century there were a lot of prominent streams of thought that said there were gods, but they didn't really care what you did. And they certainly weren't going to judge the world because if they judged the world based on what the world did right or wrong, they would be interfering in human freedom. And so they didn't do that. And so you can live how you want to live. And one of the prominent streams of thought in that day was that you should try to live with as free from as much pain as you could. Not actually you should try to live with as much pleasure as you could, but you should live free from as much pain as possible. So they would say you should only take things on if it wouldn't bring you pain and suffering and cost you something. I think it is very possible that these false teachers, that their gospel became intertwined with some of these other philosophies, that they began to bring over some of those thoughts from these other streams of ideas, and it got mixed in with the gospel. So yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, He was a real person. Yes, you can pray and follow after Him, but no, He doesn't really care what you do. He's really not going to hold you to judgment. And you should really just try to live with this, this, trying to avoid as much difficulty as possible. Those verses about obedience and following Him and taking up your cross, that's, that's not real. Now, here's my question. Is it still a danger for us that we would add things to the gospel or mix the gospel in with our own ideologies and philosophies? The answer is yes. Absolutely. I've wrestled all week with how to illustrate this, and I've had two or three illustrations that have come to mind. I'm going to use one and just pray it's the right one. Last week, I was handed a bulletin from another church And uh, 
It's a church in our area, actually up in Blunt County. I've never been there before, but I've met the guy that preaches at this church. And uh, him and I talked a lot back during the original pandemic back in 2020. And we compared notes a lot about like what was God doing in our churches and how were we handling things. And, and uh, he strikes me as a very godly man, very biblical man, and very bold in the Bible. And so the, the bulletin was from his church, and it was pretty thick, much thicker than our bulletins. So I'm sitting up in my chair, and I'm flipping through this bulletin just to see what kind of ideas we can steal. And so I'm going through it, and and, and you know when you're flipping through something, and like something catches your attention, but you keep going, and then all of a sudden it like, wait a minute, did I just... So I'm flipping through this bulletin, and all of a sudden it hits me. Did, did I just read Kamala Harris's name in this bulletin? So I flip back, and there in the front of the bulletin is leaders to pray for. President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and a list of other leaders. And here's what struck me about that. That's bold. It shouldn't be, but it is. It's one thing for a pastor to stand up and say, the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. It's another thing for a pastor to put in their bulletin, in a section of the bulletin, by the way, that doesn't change from week to week, Remember to pray for Joe Biden. Remember to pray for Kamala Harris because the Bible told you to. Now, let's, let's be real. Some of us would have walked into a church four years ago and we'd have had Donald Trump and Mike Pence there and that would have caught our attention. I've thought about it this week and the reality is I cannot remember one time in the four years that President Trump was in office that I had my kids pray for him. And I can't remember one time that I've prayed for Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or led my kids to do that. And you know what? That's not good discipleship. Because the reality is the Bible tells us to do that. And here's my point. The Bible transcends what we think about and what we hold dear The Bible transcends that. The Bible says, I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. I don't care if you like the person in office or you don't. The Bible transcends that. And it tells the believer in North Korea and the underground church there to pray for their dictator. And it tells us to pray for our president no matter who he is. The Bible transcends that. That's the pure gospel. The reason I am so silent publicly about my views on a lot of temporal things, and I haven't always been. As a matter of fact, you know how Facebook shows you, like, hey, here's what you posted 10 years ago. I'm amazed at what a troll I was 10 years ago about college football. I apologize to some of you, but I, 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 the reason I am silent about temporal things is because I don't trust myself to do so in a way publicly 
that I do not mix my views on those temporal things with the gospel about Christ. And I also don't do it because I don't want to put a stumbling block up to someone who doesn't agree with me on those temporal things. If we can give our views and our opinions on temporal things in such a way that people can see, hey, this is my view, and and I know it's my view, and I know you have a view, and I'd love to talk sometime about our views, and I'm not mad at you if you don't have my view, and this has nothing to do with the gospel, and this has nothing to do with Jesus, that's a gift, and you should probably use it. But if we can't do that, if we don't know for sure that we can do that, then we should probably be silent on the temporal things so that we can proclaim Christ and Christ alone. Because the moment you and I take our last breath, we're not going to care about those temporal things. We're going to care about Jesus, and we're going to care about how we spent our life trying to make Him known. That's what we're going to care about. I'm not saying these temporal things aren't important. They are. There's a right and there's a wrong in the world. And there's gray areas where we'll never know for sure what's right or wrong. They're important. They're not as important as Jesus. And church, if we attach anything to the gospel, if we mix anything in with the gospel, that is false teaching. It's not the pure gospel. And the only thing that can unbind someone is the pure gospel. The truth about Jesus. That's it. And it doesn't matter what side we're on on a temporal issue. What matters is that we show someone Christ as He is. I want the boldness to obey the Word no matter what. And I want you to have the boldness to obey the Word no matter what. And I want to see people unbound. And I want us to be a part of seeing people unbound. But it can only happen if we focus on Jesus and the true gospel. I want to ask the worship team if they'll come up. I want to ask our prayer partners if they'll come up. I want us to worship. I want us to pray. I want us to know that life is in Christ and the gospel, the pure gospel, the true gospel.
I want us to receive that freedom. I, I think that, I, I think the reason God took so much time this week and, and presented to us in such a clear way that we should pray for people to have freedom in Christ is because He intends to let those prayers bear fruit. So I want to call you this morning that all of us are bound by something. All of us are wrestling being bound by something, every single one of us. But if you, as Eric said earlier when, when he led prayer, if if you want to pray, if you want to come to the altar and pray, if you want to pray where you are that the Lord would unbind you, I was praying that. I know what binds me most of the time, and I was pleading with Christ to free me from that. So I, we're all in that boat. But sometimes we need to be prayed for. And these these individuals aren't up here to be praying because they're not bound by anything, but because they're willing to serve you. And so if you need prayer for freedom, would you take the opportunity this morning to be prayed for? But let me also say that that's not all they'll pray for. So if you need healing or if there's something else that's weighing on your heart that you want to be prayed for, or maybe you even came here this morning saying, I need someone to pray for me about this, you can come and be prayed for as well. If you're not being prayed for or praying for someone, let's sing. Let's sing to Christ that unbinds us, that has called us to new life. Let's sing to the one in whom we find freedom. I want to ask you if you are willing and able, if you would stand and let's sing. If you want to kneel and pray, or that's fine, but let's do what is necessary to kind of be in a posture of worship and let our heart be thinking about God. Father, this has been a difficult chapter. It's heavy. I actually thank you that you ordained that we had a break in this chapter with the McMunns coming to visit us because it is, it's a hard chapter. I want to pray again, God, as I did at the beginning, that nothing that I have said would bring harm to anyone. And if I have said something today that was not from you, I pray that it would fall to the ground and be blown away and forgotten before people ever even left this building. But I ask that whatever has been from you, even in an imperfect delivery by me, that it would sustain on our hearts and our minds. And that we would know what you're calling us to. And we would know true freedom. And we would know how to bring that freedom to someone else by the power of the Spirit. God, would you please work freedom in this room today? Would you please... Even over the replay, would you bring to life those who are spiritually dead? And would you today unbind those who still have those grave clothes on from their old way of life? Would you work freedom in this room by the power of your Spirit that we may be free to pursue you and serve the living God who gives us refreshment and provides for His creation? Please, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.